Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today we will be opening up the Salt and Light Hope Chest and pulling out some of our favorite chats. First off, Michelle O'Rourke speaks to us about her book Embracing the End of Life and singer-songwriter Chuck Stevens tells us about his vocation as a deacon and also about his music. In our second half hour, Kurt von Schuschnigg shares with us what it was like when Hitler took Austria and we'll also meet singer-songwriter Emma Frad. Remember that you can listen to any of these interviews at any time by simply going to our website, saltandlighttv.org radio. And that's also where you can now listen to uninterrupted music, Christian music like you've never heard it before. Email us at radio at saltandlighttv.org and remember to visit us on Facebook. I'm Deacon Pedro. We begin now with Michelle O'Rourke and End of Life Issues. Now, no one likes to think about it, but death is unavoidable, and how we deal with it is very important to our journey to the next life. Embracing the End of Life is a new book that tackles the topic of death with candor and thoughtfulness, while at the same time paying special attention to the care and spiritual well-being of all those who must deal with these issues. It is truly a compassionate guide that will enrich the spirit of all those who journey with the dying. And I'm happy to welcome the co-author of Embracing the End of Life, Michelle O'Rourke. Welcome, Michelle, to the program. Well, thank you, Pedro. It's great to join you. Now, Michelle, you start the book with a chapter called Befriending Death. Why? Why do we have to? If we can befriend death and not be afraid of our dying, then it actually changes the way we live. And the actual term befriending death is something that's attributed to Henry Nouwen, the great Christian spiritual writer yeah. and teacher. And he talks about how we have to be able to befriend this the way that Carl Jung talks about befriending our shadow. What's that thing that we are afraid of? And if we can do that, then we can carry on and uh, be able to change actually the way we live, so we think more about the way we're going to live through this than the way we're going to die. Does, does, that, does that have to do with specifically with death, or can we apply that to loss in general? Do you think that people just have problem dealing with loss? Uh, that's, a, that's really huge. And in our, in our society today, whether it's a loss of a relationship, a loss of a job, a loss of a dream, an ideal, yeah. or a, a pet, or... Um, or a loss of a loved one. We go through so many of the same reactions and emotions, and um, how we work through that is important. Hmm. Is it is it uh, is it part that people have? I mean, people might have fear or negative ideas about death or, or denial. I'm not sure. Maybe all of those. But is it also true that people have negative ideas of to um, the whole process of caring for someone who is dying or end-of-life care? Very much so. Um, those who are caring for the dying, especially if they're family, family members and they're not really formal caregivers with a background in health care, are afraid of that journey. And um, what people fear most 
is the unknown. They uh-huh. f- and they fear being in pain. And they fear not being able to say the right thing or do the right thing. And what we really talk about is that the important part in this journey is the gift of presence. How we are with the person. How we um, listen to them and try to talk about their feelings. And to be able to say how much we love them, help them to understand what their legacy is going to be. And so by being able to have some tools with how to care well, it helps people to be able to die well. And all of us are going to die. Our mortality rate as humans is 100%. So <laughs> yes. even though we we like to not talk about it, I mean, in our culture, we don't even want to talk about getting old. We, everything's Botox. And yeah. Nobody wants to talk about aging, let alone dying. But it's so important to be able to talk about it because if you talk about it, it takes the fear away in a lot of cases and helps us to be able to, to do it well. Um, are we... Are you... I guess we are, but are you are you just talking about palliative care in general? Um, yeah, palliative care in general, but what we have to remember is that people think that palliative care relates to cancer, but now only 25% of people die of cancer. The other 75%, besides those who die from you know trauma or other diseases, will die from chronic illness. Uh-huh. And we've come so far in medicine that people are living longer, but they have five and six illnesses. They have you know, emphysema and they have heart disease and their liver's not too good or they've had a stroke. And so what we're seeing now in the hospital, people are living into their 80s and 90s. Yeah. But you you want to say, well, you know, palliative care gives specialized support for the psychosocial and spiritual, not just the pain and symptom management. And mm-hmm. we want to be able to be there for the entire journey. But people are afraid of that. Well, I'm not dying. I don't have cancer. Hmm. When in fact they are dying because their heart is failing, but nobody's told them they're going to die of that. Can, and so even medical practitioners are in denial. Can we talk about the whole euthanasia or assisted suicide question? Sure. I, I know that the book doesn't is not about that specifically, but it does relate in that because people are afraid or people are afraid of the pain, yeah. be it physical or emotional, that that's why they think that this is an easy way out. But is this the response to that fear what you're talking about? The either appropriate palliative care or just appropriate care? Yes, and I think that people who work in palliative care for the most part would not support uh, euthanasia if it's assisted suicide because they see the value in helping somebody to make this final journey, which is sometimes the most important part of our whole human journey to make that the best way. People don't have to die in pain. People don't have to suffer um, because we have the ability to offer such good pain and symptom management and be able to oftentimes keep people in their homes surrounded by their loved mm-hmm. ones. And so sometimes people think that's the easy way out or that they want to still have control over their life when I'm living and dying. But, you know, good palliative care will support the person until the end of their natural life and and that helps them not to be so afraid. Right. Now, it might seem obvious that the book is for people who are dealing with these issues, but would you say that the book has a, a, a larger audience or a greater use? Yes, very much so. We wrote the book 
so that, number one, uh, the language is very easy. So if it's a lay person, you don't have to have a background in healthcare or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who are caring for loved ones at home, perhaps it's your mother who's dying or something, and you're not really sure how to even start talking about this or dealing with these issues. Um, there is a lot of material in it for healthcare providers, for chaplains, because part of the book is about self-reflection. There are questions. If we're going to journey with somebody else, we have to ask ourselves, well, what are my beliefs? Mm-hmm. What do I think about dying? What do I think about afterlife? What, what are my biases? And what do I bring to the bedside when I'm journeying with somebody else? Because it's about their fears and it's not about our stuff, but we have to be in touch with our stuff. And the beauty and the gift and the grace that happened with this book is when Eugene and I put it together, we thought that it would be for the caregivers and, and for mm-hmm. nurses and, and other folks. And what's happened in Eugene's practice, because he's a therapist in the family health team, a lot of folks who are actually dying are using the book to ask themselves the question so they can prepare to die well. And that's been a huge gift for us that we never, you know, believed what would happen when we uh, published the book. And it's been a real grace. So not just to help us journey with someone who might be dying, but also so that we can... Mm-hmm befriend death in a sense, be more yes, comfortable exactly. with our own. Yes, come to that ourselves so that we're not afraid and so that we're not afraid to talk about it. That's, that's the very beginning. Yeah. Now, Michelle, you run a, min- if I can call it a ministry, Sela Resources. Mm-hmm. Can you tell tell us about that? Sela Resources is, um, is based out of Chatham, Ontario and uh, we have a website, S-E-L-A-H Resources. And um, because I have a background in nursing, but I also have a a background for many, many years in pastoral ministry, and I worked in a a large Catholic parish for a long time as a pastoral minister, Mm -hmm. I'm also affiliated with a parish nursing education program. And so looking at this link between spirituality and health, um, as well as other things to do with spirituality, myself and a colleague who's a, a chaplain and a spiritual director, have sailor resources, and we are available to come and to talk to groups, to run, um, you know, days of reflection or retreat days or workshops on a whole different host of um, uh, topics that are related to, to spirituality. But in, in my case, you know, particularly spirituality and health and spirituality and dying. Right. So, so you offer retreats. There are other types of resources there that if people want to or... or... Yeah, they can find out more about the books. The yeah, two, the, the books. books are listed on the website, or there's contact information if they would like to contact okay. me um, by email. Absolutely. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for 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 writing the book and also for sharing us sharing with us some of those ideas. It's oh, so well, important. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, Michelle O'Rourke has been a registered nurse for more than thirty years. She's the author of Befriending Death, Henry Nowen, and Spirituality of Dying. She's also the co-author of Embracing the End of Life, a book published by Novalis. You can learn more about Michelle's work at her website, salaresources.ca. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Deacon Chuck Stevens, with his song, I Have Heard. Wonderful Savior, you spoke a solemn promise. That you'd be with us till the end of days And each day we'd hear you 
If we would only listen not Just with our ears but with a heart of faith Well, I have heard your call from within I've heard your footsteps walking close beside me I have heard your voice in the wind And the children singing Alleluia Shelter the homeless, comfort those who grieve. And we must know that by every word and act we do unto you what we've done to the least of The children singing Alleluia, and the children singing Alleluia. The children singing Alleluia, and the children singing Alleluia, and the children singing Alleluia. was Deacon Chuck Stevens with I Have Heard from his album, Harvest of Love. Deacon Chuck Stevens has been involved in parish music ministry since the mid-70s. Deacon Chuck has three CDs of original music. His music has been featured in Canada on the A Channel's Life and Faith. It has also been played on EWTN's Catholic Jukebox, on Michigan Catholic Radio, on Holy Family Radio's Live 365, and on a number of other Christian radio and internet stations in North America and Europe. Deacon Chuck was ordained a permanent deacon in 2007, and he now joins me on the phone from his home in Sarnia, Ontario. Welcome, Brother Deacon. Well, thank you, Deacon Pedro. It's nice <laughs> to hear you. <laughs> this is going to get really tiring is every time Deacon Chuck and Deacon Pedro. Um, <laughs> can, can you explain to people what this deacon thing is? What, what, what is a permanent deacon? Well, a permanent deacon is, um, first of all, ordained clergy. Uh, the diaconate is 
one of the three orders within holy orders. That's why the sacrament has an S on the end. That's why it's plural. Uh-huh. Um, and rather than even thinking of it as, a, as hierarchical, as in a descending order from you know bishop down to priest down to deacon, yeah. um, the deacon really serves uh, in partnership with the priest at, you know, at one hand of the bishop. Um, you know, serves at the bishop's uh, pleasure, mm-hmm. and is mostly involved in in three areas. Of course, liturgically, uh, where where some people who are familiar with with deacons will see them, is uh, during the celebration of the Eucharist or during the celebration of the Mass, particular liturgies. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, then we are primarily uh, ministers of the the Word, mm-hmm. uh, the Gospel, proclaiming it, but also preaching and teaching, yeah. uh, not only through catechesis but through our lives. Uh-huh. And then, of course, the third, and uh, some say the most important, um, is mm-hmm. the ministry of charity. Right. Where we are to be the, the hands and feet uh, of Christ the, the servant, uh, you know, in the midst of our brothers and sisters serving the poor wherever they may be. And, and poor is a pretty broad term. Yeah. So, so that's why deacons are, are often found doing ministry in seniors' homes or prisons or hospitals. Exactly. That kind of thing. Exactly. Or, uh, as you said, to the marginalized, to whoever, as long as you can justify it, uh, uh, I guess, with your bishop in terms of ministry, what that ministry of charity is. Well, that that too, you know, the, the, the whole idea of the ministry of charity, you know, again, as you said, you know, the nursing homes, the prisons, the hospitals, but especially this year where, where you know, the Holy Father has, uh, you know, instituted a year of faith for mm-hmm. us, um, there's so much spiritual poverty out there. Yes. And that's what I'm really finding... Um, a shift almost in my my ministry of charity because my outreach is primarily in the nursing homes. Yeah. Um, but I'm also very much involved with uh, spiritual direction and spiritual guidance. Oh, and yeah. There's just a real hunger out there. So, I mean, I'm amazed at how many people have never even heard about the permanent diaconate. And, you know, after Mass, they still call me Father. Yeah. And they think I'm a priest. And I have a, such a hard time explaining, I mean, what you just very well explained. Um, so how when we tell married men for example and I'll say you know I mean a married man you can be a permanent deacon how how do you know how and I guess this is kind of the how did you know question but how would you uh, explain that to someone who might be thinking well I feel called to serve the church I don't know if that means that I'm being called to the permanent diaconate well I think I think you you hit the nail partially on the head there when, oh, when you said, you know, I feel I'm being called. I mean, first and foremost, uh, before all else, uh, the permanent diaconate, you know, again, being part of holy orders, being the clerical state, it's a calling. Mm-hmm. And, and there has to be that, that burning from within, that stirring from within where, where God calls us and, and calls us to discern. And, you know, I mean, there's the three big ways of, of discerning any vocational calling, and it doesn't necessarily apply only to the diaconate. Um, but it, it applies to the diaconate as well as the, the priesthood or religious life. Right. And that's we discern through Scripture, mm-hmm. we discern through prayer, and we discern through our circumstances, yeah. you know, wherever our life seems to be changing yeah. around us. And that's the big thing. One of the, the most helpful things I've found, though, in trying to express and explain to people what the diaconate is, um, is not going to the fallback position of saying what the diaconate is not. Uh, I mean, I used to start by saying, well, you know, we do a lot of the things the priests do, but we don't consecrate the host and we don't hear confession. Right. 
um, which is not altogether true either. I mean, we, we, we hear lots of confessions. We just don't grant absolution. Do, absolutely. That's right. And we're not bound by the seal either, so I tell everybody, you don't want to tell me oh, your secrets. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but having said that, what I've found is, is more helpful is to tell people what, what deacons can do. Yeah. Or what they have the faculties to do. You know, we're ordinary ministers of the sacrament of baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're the ones ordinarily expected to proclaim the gospel. That's our proper liturgical mm-hmm. role. Um, you know, we, we marry people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we preside over uh, funeral liturgies in the absence of a priest. We do benedictions. We, we yes. bless things. All, all these things that a deacon can do, I think it's, it's most important to try and focus on that. Mm-hmm. rather than what we, we can't do. So then the, the ministry of charity, mm-hmm. how does that fit in? Because, I mean, priests, I guess priests are deacons as well, but priests uh, are also sometimes serving in, as prison chaplains or in hospitals doing, doing that kind of work. What, what makes the deacons call to that, that type of ministry different than, than the priests? Well, I think I think the important part to remember is, is again, as you pointed out, you know, once ordained is always ordained. So yes, the priests were ordained deacons before they were ordained priests. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, you know, once ordained to the priesthood, they're configured to Christ the head. And and while you know, at the Last Supper in John's Gospel, Christ did, you know, strip himself down and put on a towel and, and assume the role of a servant and and wash the disciples' feet and said, you know, um, as I have done, so you must do to one another. Uh-huh. And he also instituted, you know, the the sacramental priesthood at the at the Last Supper. Um, the diaconate is is more. I mean, we're icons of Christ the servant in that role very much in in the servant role of washing of the feet. Yeah. But we don't presume or take upon ourselves that that role of Christ the head, uh-huh. where where we are not necessarily the shepherd of the sheep. I mean, in times, you know, there are certain we circumstances have, yeah. we have to to lead. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I made a comment one time when, when uh, they said, well, I understand the bishop as the shepherd. Yeah. And I can see the priest having the role of a shepherd. Um, where does a deacon fit into that pastoral shepherd role? And, mm-hmm. and my response was, actually, I think of the, the deacon as the sheepdog. Yeah. <laughs> because the sheepdog is, is running around with the sheep, um, trying to protect the sheep from, huh. you know, uh, outside evil influences. But the sheepdog ultimately lays down his life yeah. uh, for the shepherd. Right, as opposed to lying down his life for the oh, sheep. That's good. So it's 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 very much a a permanent state of of servanthood, if right. you like. Very well said, Deacon. So so where does the music fit into all this? Is this something that's separate as a as a ministry, or do you really see that as part of your deacon as your diaconal ministry? Uh, I see the music really as as just an offshoot of of a continuing development of of my my personhood i guess if you could say or my identity as as a deacon mm. um you know i was always involved with music uh, from the time i was you know in my teens and that and and through the years you know i played in different you know bands and bar bands and playing in pubs yeah, and things yeah, yeah. like that um but uh it, it took quite a, a different turn when when uh, we were you know i was first married um and i ended up breaking my hand so i i I set aside, you know, all of my music and said, well, that's the end of that, and that was fine and, and great, and did, didn't even touch the guitar for, for a year. And um, the parish we were in was looking for somebody, and we were new to this parish. They were looking for somebody to provide music for um, a children's choir for Christmas. Uh-huh. And uh, nobody was coming forward. Nobody was volunteering. And so my wife said, you know, 
why don't you kind of step up to the plate? You know, that's that's the thing about Mary Deacons. We yes. always have the Holy Spirit speaking to us through our wives. Through our wives, in the yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, hon, you know, I haven't played guitar in a, in a year. And she said, look, it's children's liturgy. How hard can this be? Right. So I, I volunteered and, and played. And from then on, it wasn't until when I was recording um, In Your Presence in 2004 uh, while I was going through formation to the diaconate, that, that my wife pointed out to me that from the time of volunteering in that parish um, to the present, I haven't played anywhere except in churches. Right. So there was always this this, right. this dimension of, of the faith mm-hmm. and this dimension of, of what do I do with this? Much the same as, as the diaconal calling, you know, here I am, Lord, I come to do your will. What, what do you want me to do? Mm-hmm. Where do you want me to go? And so with the music, it just kind of branched out from that. Yeah. And through formation, it just it gave more grist for the mill. And so I ended up with, with writing all of this music, um, recording it, and then, you know, what do I do with it? So again, as, a, as an offshoot of the diaconate, the music has turned into this vehicle where I just, I just give it away. Um, yes, freely. You know, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, you know, freely you've been given a gift. And, and I think as a deacon, you can, you can appreciate this, that, you know, you've been given certain gifts and, and, mm-hmm. and talents and abilities. And, and as, uh, you know, the icon of Christ the servant, um, we're, we're called to, to use those abilities and those gifts and, and freely share them with each other for the greater glory of God. Yeah, amen. Wow. Um, we could spend so much time talking about this, and of course we're out of time. But it's been really good meeting you officially and, and listening to your music. Thank you for sharing a little bit of that with us. And uh, hopefully there are more albums inside of you that we can uh, have more reasons to play your music well, thank on the you air. so much for the privilege of spending time with you. Excellent. Deacon Chuck Stevens is a permanent deacon for the Diocese of London, Ontario. He continues to write music and reflections while involved in ministry at St. Benedict, St. Joseph, and Our Lady of Mercy Parishes in Sarnia, Ontario. He and his wife, Kathy, have five children. You can check out his, his website at smalltalentmusic.com. We're going to put that on our website as well so you can find it easily. Here now is Deacon Chuck with the title track of his album, Harvest of Love. of our labor, the work of our hearts and our hands. 
to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. Now, despite the Austrian Chancellor's attempts to prevent it, in March 1938, German troops marched into Austria as Adolf Hitler prepared to annex the country. The Austrian Chancellor at the time Kurt von Schuschnigg was arrested and eventually sent with his wife to a concentration camp. This is the story of von Schuschnigg and his family as told by his son Kurt, who came of age during these dramatic events. His memoir is a tribute to the faith, hope, and perseverance of his family and the many people who took great risks in order to help them survive Nazi rule and the Second World War. And Kurt Jr. and his wife Janet join me now on the phone from their home in New York. Welcome both to Salt and Light to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you so much. Thank Deacon you, thank Pedro. you, Deacon Pedro. Now, thank you very much I, for having us. I, I want to compliment you on the book because it was a, an excellent read. I, I found it interesting and entertaining. And and I have to ask you. I know Janet, um, you helped a lot. I I, I imagine. Um, uh, recreating some of these conversations because I thought, how can Kurt remember all these details? Exactly, but you know what? I know, I know Kurt as well as I know myself, and and you know, with with the outline of of the way things went and his telling, you know, he told me over years and years and years this story. Right. These uh, different bits at different times, and on rainy days you do you do things like this. Yes. And and you know it was you're right one. Some of this dialogue has to be helped a little, or was helped a little. But yes. uh, the it, the flavor uh, uh, and the gist of, of of what was written is exactly as it was. But uh, not happy memories uh, right. for my husband to go back over. Now, Kurt, did you had you been keeping a journal or anything at the time that helped you remember some of the? Not really. No, I didn't. But uh, unfortunately, these events were very strong and uh, in my mind and you couldn't uh, forget them i mean there was something right no of course i can imagine now so just to explain i don't want to give too much uh, of, of the book away because i want people to go and get the book but 
so the book, if you can explain a little bit, it's it's a it's a dramatized historical account of your growing up, Kurt. Correct. That's right. That's it. And but what I would like to say is that uh, my father, as chancellor, was the only uh, member or the only uh, minister. Yes. Chancellor, head of government. Yes. Who was actively working against Hitler at the time? Between '34 and '38, you couldn't get any any European country to assist you to help you against Hitler. They all said, "Oh, it's not so bad. It's, it's going to go away." And so on. Right. So and, he. Uh, one has to, to read the book of Hitler, the Mein Kampf, uh -huh. which my father read, and. There is the whole story is written in there, what, what he was going to do. Uh, he was saying that Austria was his first... Uh, his first goal. Goal to... To, yeah. to, to reunite together to reunite with Well, and, and I think a lot of people don't realize that Hitler was Austrian. Yeah, well, <laughs> Correct. They try and deny it. I mean, the Austrians. Well, we, we say that uh, Beethoven is Austrian and Hitler is German, you know. Right, of course. <laughs> now, so just, so, sorry, just to clarify then, so, Kurt, your father opposed, he opposed the Nazis all the time, all the while, even before he was chancellor, as, as you yes. just said. But that's not what a lot of historians say. Why is there confusion about that? Well, uh, because there was, uh, unfortunately, a uh, second... Uh, party that were the socialists. Right. They were very adamant of throwing over the government. Uh -huh. of, uh, and of they wanted to have the power mm -hmm. in those days. And the, the socialists of those days were quite different from the socialists of today. Right. They uh, were radical Marxists. They really. were, most of them. Most yes. of them. I mean, one. For instance, one of the men who was hanged in Austria because uh -huh. of the 1934 uprising that uh, had against the government was actively involved in the shooting of the Tsar of Russia. Right. And he was a former Austrian prisoner of war who became a Bolshevik with the revolution there. And took part in all these things. And, and if, if I can just say this, yes. if, if the manifesto of the socialists included, um, in it was the overthrow of the bourgeoisie government by any means and dictatorship of the proletariat. So right. they were serious. This wasn't, there was, there was just no compromise. And unfortunately, uh, they, the, my, the predecessor of Kurt von Schuschnigg was uh, Engelbert Dollfuss, who was also uh, a very dedicated Austrian, also a very strong Catholic, and determined. He was also he was he together with uh, Kurt Schuschnigg were were dedicated to this the idea of of keeping the Nazis out because they knew they they had been there. It was the ridiculous thing that. Uh, uh, in all of a sudden, after the war, yes, you read in, in the dictionaries about Dolphus and they say dictator. Yeah, this right. is a sad thing. But it's, so it's and not true. This is a sad thing. Fascist. I mean, he was so stupid. Was he? As, he was assassinated. 
Pardon? Dolphus? Dolphus was assassinated. Was assassinated. Yes. Now tell me a little bit. Despite the Nazis. You mentioned that that your both your father and Dolphus and were were very um, faithful Catholics. What was the relationship between yeah. the government at the time and the the Pope or the Church? A uh, very very good relationship. I mean, my father had a personal friendship with Pope Pius XI. Yes. And uh, who helped him. Uh, later on, form a government that was uh, not democratically elected, but it, it couldn't be in the time because. Well, what what I think my husband is trying to say is that the what happened was through the machinations of the socialist uh, head of parliament uh, to get a bill through, he resigned his post so he could vote because right. they were one vote short. Yes. It wound up that the entire parliament dissolved itself, and Dolphus, being a pragmatist, left on the chance. He said, all right, no parliament, we're going to have a different government. And they based the government on the, enci- the encyclical uh, by Pope Pius XI, and also uh, Pope Leo XIII Amazing. had endorsed this, and it, it was... The Standestadt was the German uh, word for it, but it was basically representation by labor as well as by owners in the government and state uh, trade, exactly, exactly. instead of political parties. That way they got rid of the Nazis, and And that's that's how it all started. And that's unheard of of a government basing their policies on a a papal encyclical. Um, can I, (laughs) let let me ask you, Kurt, you, I mean, when you were a little boy, your mother died. In fact, it was a car crash, but it was an assassination attempt um, on your father. You, you know, eventually the Nazis invaded. You had to move to Germany. You finished your education there. You had to avoid being drafted into the German army. You ended up in a German naval academy and serving in a German warship. I mean, the story is an incredible story. Your father, your stepmother, your sister were held in a concentration camp. What sustained you during all this time? Well, I had my faith for a was number one. Yes. And number two was survival. <laughs> right. And and your, your faith taught you survival. Were were you able to practice your faith openly, or was that something that you had to oh, yes. keep no, private? Oh yes, no, no, no. We had uh, we had the church. Churches were going, and and Hitler avoided really to be to persecute them. Persecute them. Yeah, he did persecute. Them. But not openly as much. Concentration yeah. camps, but. He didn't ban the you mass. Had, you had the church, you had masses and everything, and you had some courageous cardinals who preached yes. from the pulpit uh, quite openly against Hitler. Right. They got away with it. Miraculously, um, yeah. For instance, I was privileged to be invited by Cardinal, by then Bishop Prising, who later Cardinal Prising of Berlin, yeah. who gave me communion for my father in the concentration camp. Oh, so you were able to, do, I was going to ask you, so you were able yeah. to take, deliver communion to them, because at the concentration camp they would not have had access to mass or anything like that, right? No, of course not. No, oh. they were, yeah. And he had to, and he had to, of course, he didn't tell anybody that he had the sacrament with him. He had to be very no, careful. No, of course, because, to hide it. Yeah. Yeah, you, the, the book actually, you, 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 uh, you uh, recount some of the the things you had to smuggle in, but I'm not going to give any, any more details. Um, that's all the time we have, unfortunately, but 
I'm so glad to have been able to connect with you. I'm so glad that I read the book. It's an excellent book. And I thank you for, for taking, because it could not have been an uh, easy task to remember all that. And then for Janet to put it all together in, a, in, a, in an exciting and interesting read. So thank you for sharing a little uh, bit of your story with us. Thank you so much, Deacon Pedro. It was, it was a delight. Thank you. Kurt von Schuschnigg is the son of the Austrian Chancellor during the Nazi takeover of Austria. He and his wife Janet von Schuschnigg are the authors of When Hitler Took Austria, a memoir of heroic faith by the Chancellor's son, available through Ignatius Press at ignatius.com. Here now is our featured Artist of the Week, Emma Frad with Missing Parts. Born with missing parts And everyone else got a head start But when I caught up All I could figure Was I was a robot With a broken trigger The devil picks my scabs And I let him explore So I is yours to defend when will the chain reaction end was Emma Frad with Missing Parts from her new album, Search Party. Now, you've probably never heard of Emma Frad. She's a 22-year-old from South Australia, 
but has been living in Ottawa working with Net Ministries for the last three years. Four years ago, she had an incredible conversion experience, and she now writes all her music about her relationship with God. And her very, and her very first album, Search Party, is now out. So I'm so happy to welcome Emma Frad to the Salt and Light Hour. Emma, welcome to the show. So, four years ago, you were an atheist completely. Yes. Tell us about that. Um. Well, like I guess most people, I was raised in a Catholic family. Um, but when I got to high school, I kind of, um, I don't know, I guess just like a lot of my friends were, considered themselves atheists and I just started asking a lot of questions. You know, I can't hear God, I can't see God, so he just mustn't be real. So, um, yeah, I just kind of got involved with that and I was actually in an atheist band and, mm. um, yeah, just like we were, I went to a Catholic school, so we were forced to go to mass like every week, but I would just like never get up to receive the Eucharist and, right. you know, never do the responses and stuff. So when you say an atheist band, it's not like you were like militantly atheist. You were just not a Christian band. Yeah. Well, um, we, we were together for about a year and, uh, I think we had like four original songs and, um, you know, like a couple of the songs were actually about how like religion is wrong kind of oh, thing. Oh, really? So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, 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 ha- what changed? What, how did you, I mean, something happened <laughs> because you don't just kind of be are an atheist one day and then the next day you join <laughs> net ministries. Yeah, totally. Um, my brother Matthew, um, Matthew Fred, I don't yeah. know if you've probably heard of him. Um, yes. He is. He had an incredible conversion of his own at World Youth Day in Rome in 2000. Uh-huh. And ever since then, he'd been telling me about God, and I just never had the time for it. Um, but one day, he invited me over to. Um, he lived in Ireland at the time, and he was like, "Emma, come visit me for three months." And so I went over, and I got a job. And you know, he would always invite me to pray, and I just. Uh, I, I always would argue with him and debate with him, but finally he said to me one day, he was like, Emma, if you want to believe in God, or if you want to believe in something and know for sure if it's true, like you just have to try praying, you know, just talking to God like as you are and just being open to him. Um, and it was the best advice I've ever got because um, mm-hmm. I started being open and I got the chance to go to um, Medjugorje and um, with his youth group. Uh-huh. And I started praying to Mary, and my prayer was pretty much, Mary, if God's real, you have to prove it to me. Huh. And, um, yeah, eventually we came over to Canada, because uh, he was working for Net Ministries at the time. Yeah. And I was, I, I came along to the training, not as a volunteer, obviously, but just as a babysitter for his kids. And um, Okay. Yeah, it was just during one of the talks they had there, um, Joe Vogel, a very holy and wise man, was uh-huh. giving a talk on the love of God, and something in the talk just really hit me. And uh, Mary totally answered my prayer, and hmm. yeah, definitely a Saint Paul conversion. Experience. Amen. See, well, those are amazing. I love hearing stories like that. So, but your music is not explicitly Christian music now. So, what would you say is sort of if you could say that your music has a mission or the vision for your music? Um, yeah, like it's definitely not something you'd hear played at, like you know, in the liturgy or anything. Um, but I do try to write all my songs like about God and just my journey with Him. Um, I think one of my passions is just like, at first I tried to write my music um, just as anything that, you know, anyone who likes indie music would listen to, mm-hmm. um, but kind of with a secret underlying, like, God is the answer kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it was actually funny, just this past uh, week, some a, a couple of people approached me inviting me to play, like, full-time at a coffee shop, and it's not Christian, so yeah. I'm just really excited for that chance to play my music to, like people who will listen, you know, because, you know, they like the guitar or they like my voice, you know, but they kind of 
also evangelizing that as well. Yeah, it's true. It's more approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not what I call, you know, like the, the love songs to Jesus music yeah. <laughs> that, that are not as approachable. Why, why you've titled your album Search Party. Why that title? Why Search Party? Um, after I had my conversion, I called my friend Carla um, at home and um, I just told her about my experience. And she had been praying for me and she said, Emma, it's like God sends out a search party to each of his children who are lost and just brings them back, huh. brings them back to him. And I thought that was really cool because I could, you know, on one hand it was me searching for God, but more so it was God searching for me, you know. So, mm-hmm. so God sends out a search party. Mm-hmm. And and I guess your brother and some of these friends from that ministry, would you say, were part of that search party? Like, is yeah. that how it works? Yeah, for sure. For sure. My brother had uh, been praying for me for a long time and encouraging everyone who we were with to pray for me as well. So. Now, you said earlier, so let me just back up. So you grew up in a Catholic family. Mm-hmm. Is it just you and, and Matthew, just the two of you? Uh, I have another brother, Thomas. Yeah, and so it was a fairly Catholic family, or would you say that you kind of sort of went through the motions? Um, like, my mom's very devout. Um, my, my dad doesn't go to Mass anymore. He does, like, he does believe in God. Um, but yeah, for me, it was more so going through the motions. Right, and so you felt that just because, that, that, that you started questioning as a teenager, which is normal, I guess, for that age. Mm-hmm. Um, so musically, did you did your parents have you do like piano lessons and guitar lessons, or, or how 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 music how was there a lot of music in your household? Where did all your musical influence come from? Um, my brother Matt uh, is actually a secret musician. He has a, a great voice and a great he writes great music. Um, but I grew up, like I started taking guitar lessons and I became pretty um, confident and comfortable with the electric guitar and I would do a lot of improvisation. Oh, yeah? So I learned a lot of Metallica solos and stuff like that. Um, but I also took about a year of classical lessons. Uh-huh. Um, classical so guitar? Yeah. Yes. Classical guitar, wow. Or just finger picking and stuff. Um, but I only took lessons for about, I don't know, maybe two years. And then I just kind of went off on my own but, and learned music I liked. But your music is, is nowhere near Metallica. It's no, <laughs> no I, I dropped the, I stopped, I've kind of stopped with the electric guitar. I love it and it's so much fun. Like you can do a lot with it, but for yeah. songwriting purposes, it's difficult. So this album just came out, Search Party. Um, we've been listening to some of the songs from it. Do you have any plans for a second album or, or anything new? Do you want to go on tour? What, what are you doing with Net Ministries? I don't know. So what's new for you? Um, well, actually, this summer I did do a tour for two weeks uh, Western Canada with Joe Zambone. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was so much fun and I met a lot of great people. Um, I'm planning to record again this year. Um, it's not 100%, but I'm really hoping to in January. So please say a prayer. I'm hoping it works out. All the songs are written. It's just okay. um, making arrangements for that. Um, and yeah, I'm currently the recruiter for Net Ministries, which I'm so pumped about because um, I know there's a lot of young Catholics who you know, want an opportunity to go on mission and stuff. And yeah, I just feel like volunteering with net totally changed my life and you know like i totally want that for other people as well you know for people who've never heard of net what is net ministries um it's the largest catholic youth ministry in canada um and basically we challenge young catholics to love christ and embrace the life of the church and what that looks like is a um a year of volunteer work from august to may and you spend six weeks in training uh, hearing talks and meeting a lot of great people and we have about 60 volunteers, and we split them off into different teams. Mm-hmm. Um, a retreat team, just a day, looks like you go into a school and you invite the youth to, 
to Christ. Um, but it's in such a great format, you know, you play games with them, you get to know them, you play music with them, and then you, it eventually leads up to this point of, of prayer ministry. Um, we actually right. pray with over 28,000 youth a year, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, or a parish team, which stays in one parish for the nine months and just yeah. builds up uh, yeah. youth ministry there. Yeah, a lot of people might have uh, uh, come into contact with NET because they've had a parish team. So NET is National Evangelization Teams. Yeah. And I keep telling them, see, even way back when, I kept telling them, because I always, always thought it was new evangelization. And <laughs> see, they should have changed the name because now it's all about the new evangelization. I'm telling totally. you. Net. So um, <laughs> just a quick question about your next album. Same vein of music or do you want to go more plugged? Is it going to be more instruments? What, what's, what are we looking at? Um, yeah, I, I really like the kind of acoustic feel so um, I'm hoping that I can get some um, interesting instruments like cello and violin and clarinet Um, but yeah I'm trying to I think I don't know some one of my friends told me that uh, it sounds a lot different than my other music but I don't know I'm not I'm not trying to do anything different so it's just what's coming out (laughs) hey no that's good and it's it's good there's nothing wrong with doing something different as long as it's what it, it needs to be um, this is good stuff, Emma. Thank you very much for speaking with us today and for sharing your music and a little bit about what you do and your passion. Mm-hmm. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. That was Emma Frad. You can find her on Facebook. You can find her on YouTube. It's Emma with two M's and Frad with two D's. I'm going to put uh, a link to all these on our site, but she also has a website, emmafrad.bandcamp.com. I'm also going to put that link on our site. Um, Here's Emma uh, with another song from her album Search Party. The song is titled Wait.
We're listening to Emma Frad with Wait from her album Search Party, and that will take us to the end of the program. Remember that you can stream or podcast all our Salt and Light Hour programs on our website, saltandlighttv.org slash radio. That's also where we post links to our artists or guests like Emma Frad. And that's also now where you can listen to uninterrupted music all day long, Christian music like you've never heard it before. Again, all the wonderful Salt and Light radio artists you've come to love, including Emma Frad. We are part of the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. You can learn all about us at saltandlighttv.org, and you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for your generosity, for your prayers. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this has been the Salt and Light Hour.